Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. talking a little bit here on Mother's Day. We're kicking off this brand new series. It's called Blind Spots and uh, kind of a difficult thing to think about because you can't see what you can't see. You can't know what you don't know. And uh, this whole series, we're going to follow the life of Joseph. And uh, uh, I think it'll be encouraging to you. It's designed to be encouraging to you. But before it becomes encouraging, it should be a little discouraging. So, uh, you know, uh, buckle up for a minute. The research out there tells us that there's uh, some things going on, and it's uh, fascinating to me how much uh, the psychological world is speaking into this issue of dysfunctional families and what it has to say about it. And so I did a little research, and I thought I'd share a little bit with you here. Here is what the Journal of Family Medicine and Disease Prevention says are the characteristics of healthy families. Seven characteristics of healthy families. Are you ready? Here we go. They allow and accept emotional expressions of an individual's character and interests. I don't know about you, but I would immediately go, well, I'm going to need a little more information than that. That's, uh, I don't know. Allow and accept emotional expressions of an individual's character and interests. I, I, uh, that sounds like we're allowed to, uh, we're encouraging people in our families to act out emotionally. I don't know. Is that what it says to you? Evidently, that's healthy. It's a good thing for you. Number two, obvious and consistent rules in the family and boundaries between individuals are honored. So once again, that there are, you know, individual boundaries and we honor them. We actually listen to all of the members of the family. They have a voice and there is some consistent process going on. The rules aren't constantly changing. Number three, we're consistently treating members with respect and we build a level of flexibility to meet the individual's needs. So there's a layer of respect, but we're also being flexible. It's not one size fits all in a family. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a family where one size fit all. You know, we, had not, we weren't enlightened back in those days. It was, this is rules of family and everybody fits in. Amen? And, uh, and you found that your parents could help you fit in if you weren't fitting in. <laughs> you can't do that anymore, evidently. <laughs> evidently, kids know how to use a phone. Number four, all family members feel safe and secure. That's a good one. There's no fear from emotional, verbal, physical, or sexual abuse. Everybody feels safe. Wouldn't it be nice if when you came home, you felt at home? It'd be nice if you got there and it felt safe and secure, a sanctuary, a place where you longed to be. Experts say, number five, characteristics of healthy families. Parents provide care for their children. I just want you to know, I didn't write these. I just copied and pasted them right out of the disease, you know, Journal of Medicine and Disease Control. I didn't edit, editorialize. Parents provide care for their children, not expecting their children to take their parental responsibilities. Not a single amen. <laughs> a single one. Just, uh, it's kind of an ouch, isn't it? Because we kind of do sometimes project some of that. Responsibilities given, number six, are appropriate to their age. There's flexibility, and we are forgiving of a child's mistakes. This is what healthy families do. Not Disney families, but healthy families. <laughs> Number seven, perfection is unattainable. It's unrealistic. Besides, it's potentially dull and sterile. 
So that's what, that's what healthy families do. Those are seven characteristics, according to medical science, that healthy families share. And so not only in this article did they talk about what the healthy uh, sort of processes are, they also talked about the dysfunctional processes. Now, I read them, and there are five uh, family types that uh, they identify, and it was so depressing I decided that I wouldn't read them to you. <laughs> So I did decide I would read what the types are, and then if you really want to know, you can go do the research yourself, because, uh, I don't know, I, I, there's only five, and I have four of them, so I don't know. <laughs> types of dysfunctional family dynamics. Here they are. Number one, the chronic conflict family. Take your time. Number two, pathological households. Sounds like a fun place. Number three, the chaotic household. <laughs> Some of us are a number one with a side of three. <laughs> I mean, I assume you can do that, right? I mean, why would you need to pick just one entree? You could have many. Number four, the dominant submissive household. Number five, emotionally distant families. And my thought in sharing that with you on this Mother's Day, by the way, happy Mother's Day. is that medical science and the social sciences are working hard to, to discuss what it means to be a healthy family, what it means for us to function well together, and what it looks like when it's not working and what the characteristics are when it is working. And so uh, just so you know, we're going to be in this little series from now until we conclude on uh, Father's Day. Uh, and so we're going to talk about blind spots and we're going to use the character of Joseph in the Old Testament. Uh, we're just going to follow his life story. Today I'm going to give you a little background. And uh, it's surprising how dysfunctional uh, Joseph and his family are. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit and kind of use that story as the backdrop. But, uh, and so, just so you know, this is designed to be encouraging. But it's not going to get encouraging yet. <laughs> so uh, just think about this. Dr. Stephen Cartman years ago developed something called the dreaded drama triangle. And in this conversation, he says that, that folks in a family system are generally playing the role, one of three roles. And, and that sometimes we trade roles within the triangle. And, and, the, and the whole model itself is set up and sort of predicated on the idea that these are caricatures. So, so what I'm going to read to you is sort of the extreme version of each of these personality types. So I don't want you to you know, uh, think that you have to have all of this going on. It's just that we all sort of share. And then what's fascinating is we may trade places in the dreaded drama triangle, depending on who we are talking to and with whom we're sharing this moment of relationship. Uh, now, generally speaking, uh, uh, people slide around in the triangle. So just sit back, relax. Just don't be overwhelmed. Uh, the three characters in the dreaded triangle uh, are uh, victim, rescuer, rescuer, and persecutor. So uh, you can try to decide now which one you are. But in case you don't know, let me read to you the descriptions. The victim. The stance of the victim is poor me. Victims see themselves as victimized, oppressed, powerless, helpless, hopeless, dejected, and ashamed. And they come across as super sensitive. Wanting kid glove treatment from others. They can deny any responsibility for their negative circumstances and deny possession of the power to change those circumstances. A person in the victim role will look for a rescuer, a savior, 
to save them. And if someone refuses or fails to do that, they can quickly become a persecutor. Their blind spot typically is that victims have real difficulties making decisions. They have difficulty solving problems. They have difficulty finding much pleasure in life or understanding their self-perpetuating behaviors. The victim. Take your time. Number two, rescuers. The stance of the rest, so far, when you saw that list, didn't you? Your persecutor, victim, rescuer. Oh, I want to be the rescuer. <laughs> I think I am a rescuer. The stance of the rescuer is let me help you. Rescuers work hard to help and caretake other people and even need to help others to feel good about themselves while often neglecting their own needs and not taking responsibility for meeting their own needs. If you like the rescuer, just wait. (laughs) Rescuers are classically codependent and enablers. They need victims to help, and often they won't allow victims to succeed or get better. They can use guilt to keep their victims dependent, and they can feel guilty themselves if they're not rescuing somebody. A typical blind spot for a rescuer, they're frequently harried, overworked, tired. They live a martyr lifestyle. And resentment usually bubbles just under the surface of their lives. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) I don't don't know if you people are rescuers or you live with one. (laughs) That was such a gusto amen. I I think it was one of those things where you're like, it's about time somebody took those rescuers down. (laughs) Get them out of there. So tired of them being idolized. (laughs) Number three, the persecutor. The stance of the persecutor is, it's all your fault. Persecutors criticize and blame the victim. They set strict limits. They're controlling, rigid, authoritative, angry, and unpleasant. They keep the victim feeling oppressed through threats and bullying. In terms of blind spots, as if they needed any, I added that. (laughs) It's not in that description. Persecutors can't bend. They can't be flexible, they can't be vulnerable, they can't be human. They fear the risk of being a victim themselves. Persecutors yell and criticize, but they don't usually solve any problems, and they don't usually help anyone else to solve problems. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) What's fascinating about the dreaded drama triangle to me is that uh, when you begin to read all of the stuff that's in it, first of all, none of us are probably all of that. But all of us at some point can identify. And so this is sort of the theory, you know, have you ever heard of the Jeffersonian Enlightenment theory? Which means basically telling you stuff makes you better. I don't know that it's true. But, you know, where we go, oh, let me think about that. But what's fascinating about this little triangle is that persecutors who aren't getting where they want to go slide quickly to be victims. And rescuers who are not getting the appreciation they think they want slide to be victims. Don't usually have persecutors who become rescuers or rescuers who become persecutors, but do you have generally victims can go either direction at any given time, depending on how stressed out they are, you know, and then the others can slip around. And maybe as you think about that, you can see how those roles are playing out inside your family and the dynamics that are going on. 
to think for a minute about Joseph and about his family. I, I don't know about you, but if I were writing a story uh, about the patriarchs of this newfound faith, about this, you know, Yahweh speaking the new covenant and Abraham going and you'll be my people and I'll be your God and through you the nations of the world will be blessed. If this story narrative is starting to get going, I would not tell all the stories that the Bible tells about these people. It should be encouraging to us to understand that here at the patriarchal level, at this infancy piece of the story of the Judeo-Christian tradition, there is a family that is so deeply caught in dysfunction that it is sometimes difficult to even tell their story. Sometimes it's difficult to read their story. And yet, here they are, not only displaying all of that dysfunction and all of the layers of it, but God still using them. God still stepping into the dysfunction and making it happen. Talk about grace. And not only should we sense and understand that here in the front window is this story of family dysfunction, but it should at least resonate with us at a level where we say, I think, I think we're going to be okay. I think we're going to be okay. I think we're going to make it. In order to talk about Joseph, we probably have to back up in the family line a little bit we'd have to talk a little bit uh, about Jacob and we'd have to talk about uh, Jacob's story and the things that happened to him now Jacob's father is Isaac and so we say Abraham Isaac and Jacob are the patriarchs and now the sons of Jacob the 12 sons of Jacob become the head of the 12 tribes of Israel everybody with me on the family tree you guys doing okay did I stun you early you feel tranquilized at some. You were had energy, and now I killed it. I'm sorry. So we have to go back in the story. Jacob is a twin. His uh, twin brother is named Esau, and so uh, we're told that Esau, during the process of birth, puts his hand out, and they tie a string around it to identify him as the oldest. And then Jacob grabs him and pulls him back, and then Jacob's born, and then Esau's born. But Esau's the oldest. Esau's the older of the two. And so we're caught in this story, we're in this process, and we find that we start to learn a few things as the story unfolds. We, we find that Jacob is sort of in this mode where he likes to hang around by the tent, and he likes to hang out, and he's learned to be a great cook, and he's learned to do some things, and so uh, we find out that he's the, he's the favorite of his mother, Rebecca. And that his brother Esau has kind of grown into a man's man, and he's a hunter and a fisherman, and he's, we're told a couple of things about him. He's hairy. And he smells like the outdoors. So I'm not sure what all that means, but uh, that is the storyline that goes along. And he is the favorite of his father. And so Isaac favors Esau, and Rebekah favors Jacob. And so because Jacob has hung around the house, and he's been hanging around the tent, he learns to be a, an accomplished cook. And we're told that one day he's preparing a, a big pot of stew, and Esau has been out hunting, and he comes home... And when he comes home, he's starving, and he smells the stew that Jacob has prepared, and he said, I, give me some of that soup. And, and Jacob says, well, I'll give you some soup if you sell me your birthright. Esau's the older. In the old days, the older son inherited everything, 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 everything. The other children got nothing. So Jacob says, if you'll sell me the birthright, I'll give you some food. And Esau, in his wisdom says, what good is the birthright if I'm dying of hunger? It's like our kids say that kind of stuff to us, don't they? And so for a bowl of stew, Esau sells the birthright to Jacob. 
And Jacob has the first piece of the puzzle. Now, the second piece of the puzzle is that he needs to receive the verbal blessing of his father. He needs the words of blessing spoken over him so that he might receive the full inheritance. And so, this is going to require a little more work. Thankfully, in this wonderfully functional family, Rebecca, Jacob's mother, to whom he is the favorite, joins in the deception of deceiving Isaac so that Jacob can receive the blessing and not Esau. Now, Esau is hairy and he smells like the outdoors. And Jacob smells like mint. <laughs> we actually don't know what Jacob smells like. He just, maybe rosemary, I don't know what, olive oil, something. And so Rebecca takes a goat and she takes goat skin and she puts it over his arms and she gets some of Esau's clothes and puts on him because Isaac now can't see. This is a highly functional family, is it not? And so they trot out Jacob in front of Isaac to receive the blessing. In fact, Isaac says, Esau, I want you to go out and, and hunt and kill something and prepare the meat that I like and bring it to me. And Rebecca hears it. And she goes into the kitchen and she makes a meal and she hands it to Jacob and says, take this to your father, uh, put on this goat skin, deceive him, pretend you're Esau, and you'll get the blessing. And so he does. In fact, he shows up and, and Isaac says, wow, that was quick. I'm not making this up. It's really in the Bible. And he says, yes, the Lord blessed my hunting. And so he reaches out, come close to me so I can touch you. And so he does. And he feels his arms. And he says, your voice is like my son Jacob, but you're hairy and you smell like the outdoors. <laughs> so you must be Esau. And he speaks the blessing over him. And now Jacob will be, now we say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't say Abraham, Isaac, and Esau because at this moment, the blessing and the birthright now belong to Jacob. Jacob, by the way, means deceiver. <laughs> this is the patriarchal family. Jacob's the father of the 12 tribes. So Jacob, now we're told, is in fear for his life from his twin brother, Esau. So he decides he'll go back to his the land of his ancestors to find a wife. And so he does. He leaves and he goes to find a, a, a wife. And he goes to the land of Haran. And when he arrives there, he meets a young woman and her name is Rachel. And he falls madly in love with her. She's the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. And so he goes to her father and says, I really would like to marry your daughter, Rachel. And he says, that's great. Just work seven years for me and you can have her hand in marriage. And he says, okay. I really don't understand what has happened. Now, if you have daughters, you just have to pay for everything. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? You understand this? He had two daughters, and the deal was, work for me for seven years, seven years of labor to get the daughter. Jacob says, it was like a day. My love for Rachel is such. Have you read it? It's in there. It was like a day. But, but this story gets better. So there's a wedding. There's a great sale. Woo! Seven years. Jacob wakes up the next morning. Guess what? Father-in-law didn't give him the daughter, Rachel. Gave him an older daughter named Leah. He's married the wrong woman. 
Thankfully, the father-in-law is... This is in the Bible, by the way. I'm not... I didn't take this from a soap opera, nothing like that. <laughs> Thankfully, the father-in-law is very broad-minded, and he says, listen, uh, I feel, feel a little bad about, you know, <laughs> the little bait and switch, but... Uh, <laughs> so I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you. You can also marry Rachel, and then you can just stay on and work seven more years. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that must have been big news coming home that night. Talk to your dad. We're all going to live together. <laughs> Leah, Rachel, it'll be great. <laughs> and then we find out that Leah begins immediately to, to bear children. But Rachel is barren. And so Rachel offers her servant so that she can, through her servant, bear children. And so Billa and then later Zippah are offered both, first of all, from Rachel, and now the servant woman begins to bear children. And then eventually Leah says, well, I better offer my servant too. So now, you know, both servant women are bearing children for Jacob. These are the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Rachel finally, late, bears children. So that when we read the story... This is just Genesis 35. This is just a little thing that happens. When your family tree sounds like this, it might be a problem. Jacob, Genesis 35, 22. Jacob had 12 sons, the son of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's servant, Billa, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's servant, Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padamaram. When your family tree sounds like that, it, it, it is complex, is it not? And so when, when we think about Jacob, we think about this dysfunctional and it's generational kind of dysfunction. That Jacob and his mother work to deceive Isaac, that there's this dysfunction between he and Esau, that, that you know, all of this stuff is happening. And then what kind of dad is Jacob going to be? Well, it turns out not great. It turns out he doesn't do all that well. And we kind of pick up the story of Joseph in Genesis 37. Just four short verses, but listen to what's going on. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks of his brothers. Let's be specific. The sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, Jake, uh, uh, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a, a kind word about him. Listen, that's a lot of dysfunction in four verses. So we immediately find out that Joseph is a young man of 17. He's out watching the flocks. And he comes home and he tattles to his father. We don't really know what he said, but from the context, we can sort of understand that it probably wasn't good. That the 17-year-old was not reporting good things about his older brothers. It's never happened before in the history of humankind <laughs> that younger siblings would tattle on older siblings. And it's never happened before that parents believe the younger sibling in favor of the older siblings. That's never all that. And then we hear this little explanation. Because he was born to Jacob in his old age. Well, not only was he born to Jacob in his old age, but he was the firstborn of Rachel, his true love, which is really the heart of the matter. 
which is really what it's about. And it starts to soften your heart a little bit when you think about the dynamics of this family and what's gone on. And then in passing, we're told he was given an ornate robe. Now, it's interesting that out of this one verse, we build a lot, but we do find out, in fact, if you get into the original Hebrew, you do find out it was a coat of many colors, that it was an ornate, a robe that was given to show favor. I don't know. It doesn't seem that smart. (laughs) For the father of so many children to play favorites. But into this place of dysfunction, God does redemptive work. Just three observations on this Mother's Day as we share together. Number one, when it comes to dysfunction in our families, we all have them. We all have them. It, just, to, just to be clear, I, I don't know about you, but it seems like that uh, we all kind of look around and we see people who seem to have it together, whose families seem to have it together, who, who seem mature and wise, and, uh, you know, they laugh together. Ha, 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 you know. <laughs> but we all have dysfunction in our story, in our families. It's the truest part of who we are as human beings. I wouldn't say that none of us are healthy, but we probably could easily say that none of us are healthy. Certainly none of us are whole. None of us get it right all the time. None of us, I don't know about you, but wouldn't you like to go back and start over now that you're, you know, I mean, if you've been through the process, wouldn't you like to go, you know what, (laughs) if I could go back and know then what I know now, I would, I would crush it. (laughs) As it was, I just kind of destroyed it. Because we all have that going on. And I just, I try to imagine this reality. If I was going to start my own religion, I would clean these characters up. I mean, if I was going to write an account of them, I would clean them up. I would elevate, I would play down their character flaws. I mean, I'd make them be human just so we could all identify with them. But I would not put out there on the front page the level of dysfunction that the scripture allows to be told. I would make them an exemplary family that all of us go, that's what we all want to be like. (laughs) There's not a one of us that look at the patriarchs and go, I don't really want ever to act like that. (laughs) Amen? And why do you think that's so? Why in the sacred, prophetic, inspired word of God does this exist in this way? Because God works with broken, dysfunctional families. Because there aren't any other kinds. Amen? Amen. Because we're all dysfunctional in some way. Maybe as we talked about the dreaded drama triangle, you said, oh yeah, I'm I'm the persecutor. Nobody says that. (laughs) People think I'm the persecutor, but I'm not. (laughs) I'm the victim. But as we look at that triangle and we start to try to identify, you know, who's who and when and what and how that all works, some of us are like, I'm none of those. Guess what? This is your blind spot. (laughs) Amen? And we all have them. And it's a terrible thing to do a series called Blind Spots because we can't see our blind spots. We don't know what we don't know. 
But we all have them. We all have them. Number two, not only do we all have them, but it's important that we understand this. Our blind spots, our dysfunction does not determine the outcome of our story. Our blind spots and our dysfunction does not determine the outcome of our story. Whatever has happened, whatever you did, whatever they did, whatever happened, whatever was going on in the family system, whatever, you know, your parents did. I'm almost, I'll turn 59 next month. I don't know why that's interesting, but, <laughs> wow, you've held up well, you know, or man, you're old. Uh, just depends on which generation you are, you know. Would you believe that at this stage of my life, I was back in Oklahoma City with my uh, mom a few weeks ago, uh, and uh, I'm still learning about the dysfunction of my own family. I, she told me things, I was like, what? And then, you know, she did what, what parents do in that situation. Oh, you knew that. No. And don't you kind of want to just limp away? Like, no. No, but thanks. Because <laughs> you're still learning it. All these years later, he did what? <laughs> they said What? Well, no wonder there was tension at Thanksgiving. I didn't know. Because we all have it. But it does not determine our outcomes. By the grace of God. That's why this story is in there like it is. Whatever happened. Whatever went wrong. Whatever scars you carry. It does not determine where we're going next. Third point. It's never too late to change course. It's never too late to change course. I think sometimes we are all caught up in our culture about trying to figure out the causes of things before we can do anything about the problem. Amen? So on Mother's Day, Sunday morning, let's talk about global warming for a minute. I love, that. I love the way that goes over. I don't know whether to laugh or leave. Because we could first have a debate about is it or isn't it. I mean, we could all have that thing happen, and we go, well, I don't. I mean, yes, no. I mean, I, we could do that for a while, make each other really mad. And then we could talk about, well, if it exists. Because, see, I have to be even careful how I say it. <laughs> if it exists, what, what's causing it? Because then we could debate that for a long, long time. We could just, you know. And then we could get on to the next part, which is what do we do about it? Which, obviously, we haven't gotten to yet. And here's my thing. Who cares? Who cares? If, if you said it might be, it, it, wouldn't you go, well, I'll tell you what. If it might be, let's do better. If it might be. Let's do better. <laughs> well, I'm not going to do better until I find out what's causing it and who's doing it. <laughs> and that's just one little example because this is what we do in our families too, isn't it? Well, I'm not even sure there is a problem. And you may think there's a problem, but I'm not sure there is a problem. 
The last thing I want to do is start finding solutions when I'm not sure there's a problem. <laughs> Besides, if there is a problem, I want to know who's causing it. <laughs> and once we determine the cause, we can set a course of action to address the problem and get better. How about this? Let's do better. Let's just forget about is it or isn't it. We are dysfunctional because we're human. And when you put humans together into a thing called a family, there is dysfunction going on. Amen. And some of us are way better at hiding it and denying it than others. Amen. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I just think for a minute about how church used to be. You know, when I was growing up, I mean, everybody's like, Everybody looked perfect. You, you old people remember. We put on our best clothes. We all marched out to church. We were so pleasant and wonderful and happy and well-adjusted. And then underneath, you know, if you, were, if you were tapped into the circuit, you knew the stuff. I have a prayer request. Amen. So at least we wear our dysfunction a little more on the outside now. I mean, that, that, that has happened. Or maybe we just got worn out. We're just like, ah, I don't care. But listen, it is never too late to change course. It doesn't matter if you believe in the dysfunction. If somebody in your family is saying, this isn't working for me, that's enough. That's enough. We don't need to figure out who's to blame. Couldn't we all do better? Couldn't we today do better? Couldn't we do better with our words, with the level of respect we have for each other, for the way we honor one another? Couldn't we go out of this room and say, I'm going to do better. I don't care whose fault it is. I don't care, I don't care what the dreaded drama triangle is. Now that I've identified it, I'm going to put a big note in the family room, and I'm going to say, Dad, <laughs> you are the persecutor. Finally, it was a breakthrough at church today. I know what you are. <laughs> Pastor Dave said. I love that stuff. <laughs> Dear Pastor Dave, did you tell my children that I am a persecutor in my home? I, 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 I don't know. I don't think so. Can't we do better? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at different blind spots. Today, we're talking about the blind spots of habits because we're all in a habit, aren't we? We all have our family, and our habit works the way it works. But what if today you said, I understand that we're all dysfunctional. We all have it. And I understand that this does not determine the outcome. It doesn't determine the outcome of our family. It doesn't determine the outcome of the quality of lives of my children. It doesn't determine the quality of lives of my grandchildren. It's not systemically evil. In fact, what the story tells us is that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness and that there is something called grace, that even when everything is falling apart and we're making the worst possible decisions and, and it's obvious to everybody except us, still God, by his grace, is working with us and bringing us forward and bringing us forward and bringing us forward, and bringing us forward. And he's bringing you forward. And he's bringing your family forward. 
and he's bringing your family system forward and he's inviting you to do this. I am who he says I am. I am not who I see myself to be. I'm not who all these other people see me to be. I am who he says I am. And that's my vision and that's my goal, to become more and more of what I am called and created to be so that out of this dysfunction, it is a redemptive God. He takes all of this and he uses it for good. In all things, I will work for the good. God help us. Would you allow us as we close and sing these words that they might be our testimony and our prayer? When we think about blind spots and we think about what that means, it's a little scary. We cannot see what we cannot see. And so here on Mother's Day at the beginning of this series, we humble ourselves and we invite you to search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We just quiet our hearts. We quiet our minds. We humble ourselves as we look up through the generations before us we look up with grace we acknowledge the damage and the pain but we can't possibly know the circumstances of another person Maybe they fought issues in their lives and at some level they were heroic even as they caused pain and dysfunction. We surrender the past to you. We surrender our own hearts, our very best intentions that get mangled and twisted and Moments of weakness, we fail, we lash out, we come to believe things that are untrue and feel things that are leading us down paths that aren't good for our soul. So we open our hearts, we open our minds, we desire to be who you say we are. It is our prayer and our commitment as we respond to your word. I place in your hands this congregation, especially our mothers today, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said together, will you stand with me as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.